Okay, if you will, turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. <clears throat> we'll look at verse 1. Exodus chapter 19. We talked about last week, and I believe it was Chuck Missler, a very able Bible teacher, who said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and that the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Uh, that's a real good comment. Uh, the uh, typology, in other words, the pictures in the Old Testament that draw a portrait of what God would one day do through His Son, uh, is just amazing throughout the scripture. Some we can see and some are very evident and some we're still exploring and God's revealing to us along the way. But God paints us pictures and portraits of coming attractions. That God's made some promises in the Old Testament and He fulfilled every last one of them in the New Testament through His Son, Jesus. And so the cross is portrayed and pictured throughout the Old Testament. And then it comes to full life and we get to see it in the New Testament. And we talked about that time and again. And we talked about the typology and the types of the pictures that go with the Exodus narrative. And how that uh, Egypt is a picture of the world. That Pharaoh is a picture of the devil. And the enslavement that we were under to sin. And the liberation of God's chosen people. People that were chosen by God for no other reason except for God chosen. That's the only thing the Bible gives us to give us a reason for Him chosen. Cho choosing them was His sovereign choice, period. And that they're a picture of believers. And the Bible says we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. And it's not because of anything that was in us that God chose us, because of what's in Him. And then, Moses is a type of Jesus and how He was the leader that led them out. He Himself said of Himself and of Christ in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that there will be a prophet that God will one day send who's like me and him you will hear. And so Moses already knew and through the power of the Holy Spirit that his actions were a portrait of Christ who would one day come. And that that journey as they were liberated from 430 years of Egyptian bondage and they go through the 40 years of wilderness wanderings a picture of a, a, a believer who hasn't yet made up his mind to be in the world but not of it. It's a believer caught between two opinions trying to hang on to heaven and earth at the same time. And we're called upon to let go of one or the other because you can't really hold on to both. And they go through the wilderness wanderings to show the life of a believer struggling between the flesh and the spirit. Who's going to control my life? And then going into the promised land is a picture of victorious Christian living. It's the believer who's living by faith. It's the believer who's decided to trust Christ in practical ways in his life and let Jesus have control rather than us continuing to buy for control. So that whole narrative is a picture of our life in Christ. It's a picture of our Deliverer. It's a picture of the hope that we have in Him, the future that we have in Him, the victorious life that we want to live that Wendy was just asking about, praying about, that we would finish well in the Christian life. We would be, we'd cross the finish line, faithful, full of Him, and empty of us. And so as we look at the narrative and we go through it, we come to the point where the law has been given and the tabernacle. And we've talked about this and we looked at it last week. And before we launch in or as we launch into the teaching on the tabernacle, we're going to look at where they are in the wilderness journey three months into it. It says in verse 19, in chapter 19, verse 1, it says in the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land in Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, 
we talked about in summary from last week that every time or many times when we think about Mount Sinai and we think about Moses' trip to Mount Sinai, we think about the Ten Commandments. We think about the law that was given to him, and indeed it was given to him. But at the same time that he was up there, God not only gave him instructions regarding the law, or gave him the law, he gave him instructions regarding the construction of the tabernacle. It's incredibly important, and it's amazing at the same time, because he gave them the law and the curses and the penalties for violating the law, and then he gave them at the same time a method to appease his righteous judgment for having broken it. It's kind of like, it's kind of like getting your driver's license. Jill, the other day, we thought we had lost her driver's license. So we went over there to the driver's license place to get a replacement license. We spent a week there one day. And we were <laughs> waiting, there, waiting there to get the license. And uh, it would be like getting a license and then you going through and taking the test and them giving you the license and, and you subscribing to the fact that in, in school zones the speed limit is this. On the open road, it's this. On the interstates, it's this. And they give you the rules and the regulations. And then at the same time, while they give you the rules and the regulations, they give you a pad full of tickets for violating it. And you go, wait a minute. We haven't got on the road yet. We've not even left the parking lot. I remember we've not even once tried out. You know, and you've already get, he's, I'm, you're going to break it. You're going to break it time and again. So they write out a pad full of tickets. Just uh, uh, give you a wheelbarrow full of tickets to take out to your car and say, here are all the tickets that we anticipate that you're going to get. This is exactly what happened by giving the law and the tabernacle at the same time. When he gave instructions about the tabernacle, he in effect was saying, you're going to break every one of these habitually. You're going to do it. This has everything to do with the gospel and how we share it. Stay with me. Now let's look on the front page and we'll go through. And we're going to go through the fill-ins and I'll just give them to you quickly. We talked about the fact that there are two chapters in the Word of God that are devoted to a description of the creation of the world and mankind. But, in the Scriptures, there are 50 chapters, 50 chapters that are devoted to the description of the tabernacle and its related ministries. According to Exodus 19.1, which we just read, the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sinai three months after they were delivered from Egypt. Three months after they were delivered from Egypt. God summoned Moses twice to the top of Mount Sinai to meet with him. Both trips lasted 40 days and 40 nights. The first trip, Exodus 24:18, tells us it was 40 days and 40 nights. Second trip, Exodus 34:28, tells us it was 40 days and 40 nights. When we look at the first trip, this is in summary from our message from last week. In Exodus chapter 19 through 24, we have the detailed account of the commandments, the statutes, the precepts, and the laws given to Moses by God. That's Exodus 24:12. In Exodus chapter 25 through 31, we have the record of the pattern of the tabernacle. That's the fill-in there. The tabernacle given to Moses by God. We're told that in Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. And so God gives us, on the first trip, He gives them the law, and He gives them the tabernacle. In between the two trips, you remember that there was a snafu. Here again, just go ahead and write out the ticket. Before you ever get on the road, you're a lawbreaker. Before you ever get out on the road and test this thing, I promise you, you're going to break the law. Look what winds up happening. When he's going down, uh, when he's up there on his first trip, he has to come down 
Uh, and in between the first and second trip, in Exodus chapter 32, we have the record of the children of Israel breaking the law by committing idolatry before Moses had even descended from the mountain with the law. So, so before he ever got down the mountain with the law, they'd already it, broken it by committing idolatry. What does Moses do? Moses intercedes for the people as a picture of Christ, our intercessor. He's, Hebrews 7.25 says he ever lives to make intercession for us. What does God do? Praise His holy name. God subsequently has mercy on them. They had, he had mercy on them. Now look, this was an act of grace. This was an act of grace that was not dictated by the law. You'll not find a spot in the law where it says that God's going to graciously deal with them. Not in the law you won't. In the law, all you find out is curses for violating it. All you find out is punishment. There is no grace in the law. There's none whatsoever. Now Moses, being a type of Christ, what did he do? He comes off the mountain and says, God, he reminds God, God, you made promises to these people because God says, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to wipe them out. They've already started worshiping pagan gods. They're already committing sexual immorality. They're doing everything. And Moses reminds him, he says, God, these are your people. These are your people. The picture of Christ reminding him of the, the coming attraction that Jesus Christ is one day going to be an intermediator, a mediator between God and man. There's one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. He gives us a picture of it already. And Moses is a type of Christ who is to come. That's an act of grace that was not dictated by the law. Look at Exodus 22.20. It says, He who sacrifices to any god except to the Lord only, he shall utterly be destroyed. Now let me ask you a question. How can God keep his word? Because we know God keeps his word. And at the same time forgive them for sacrificing to a pagan god. How can God do it? Kind of a dilemma, isn't it? I mean, if God says, and he did, he said in Exodus 22.20, He who sacrifices to any god they already made up of a God. You know what they did? Does anybody remember from last week? You remember what they did? Made a golden calf. They took the gold that they brought out of Egypt, they put it together, forged it together, made a golden calf out of it, and set it up there and said, this is who delivered us from 430 years of Egyptian bondage. Imagine! And they'd already, they'd already broken this commandment. He said, if you sacrifice to another God, you're supposed to be destroyed. God comes down, with Moses off the mountain and says, I'm going to fulfill my word. I'm going to take every last one of them out. Just like that. Now, if he'd have done that, he'd been acting consistent with his word from that, from that standpoint. If he'd have went up to Mount Sinai and all we got was the law, they'd be in trouble. But we also got the tabernacle. See, God is going to fulfill his word. God can't back out on it. He said if this kind of idolatry merits destruction, somebody's going to be destroyed. God summons Moses a second time. Let's look at our notes. To return to the top of the mountain in order to meet with him again. Exodus 34.22 Moses was there with the Lord for another 40 days and nights. Exodus 34.28 At that time, God again gave Moses the Ten Commandments. That's your fill-in. Ten Commandments. Yet again as he did during the first trip. Now, in Exodus chapters 34, 35-40, the actual building of the tabernacle is described. The building of the tabernacle is described. Now let's look on the second, second page. We have in that act the pattern of the witness of the gospel. 
A very clear pattern can be seen in both of these trips in our Lord's instruction and revelation to Moses. First, like we talked about, in the first trip, he gave the law. Second, tri second and, and at the same time, gave the tabernacle. Second trip, same thing. Gave the law and gave, in gave instructions regarding the building of the tabernacle. Had Moses come down with only the law, the story for the Hebrew children would have ended there. For it called for judgment and death for lawbreakers like them and all of us. If he would have come down with just the law, and we talk about that, we think of Moses in terms of the pillar, uh, the law that was written on the stone pillars. Had he just come down with the law, everything would have been over for, there, for them because judgment and death would be the only thing that would await them. And that's the same thing for you and I. But listen to this. He foreknew their failures. There's your fill-in. He foreknew their failures. Can I say this this morning to you? Maybe this will encourage you and bless you because it does me. He foreknew yours too. Amen? You, did you think that God, the first time that you acted in a rebellion, known rebellion against Him, went, huh? I didn't expect that out of Ken. I didn't expect that out of Lindsay. Whoa! Wait a minute. I didn't expect that out of them. No, 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 no. See, the tickets have already been written. Tons of them. I bet if I had, I bet if, if, if my wife came out of there with one wheelbarrow, I probably had a carload full of them for violating God's righteous law. He wasn't surprised by that. He never expected them to keep it in the first place. He never expected to keep it in the first place. He expected them to violate it and he uses it now as a tool to show us to be the lawbreakers that we are. That's the purpose of the law. But praise his name, he gave the lamb at the same time. He gave us the law and he gave us the tabernacle. The story wasn't over for them. Listen, look what it says here. Isaiah 45, 21. Tell, for, tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared from this ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God beside me. And look at this. A just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Did you know when he came off of that mountain? It's not the only thing, the only thing we learn from that is not that just God's just. We also learn because he gave the tabernacle that God's also a Savior. And he said it right there. Look what it says. Tell it. Bring forth your case. Wendy, come up here to the pulpit and tell and bring forth your case as a former rebel, somebody who resisted God's will for your life and decided to do it your way. Let's take counsel together. Who has declared it from ancient time? This is not new news. God purposed to redeem man through His Son from the beginning. Hallelujah, His name. Who has told it? Bring forth the case. Have not I the Lord? I gave it to you, even on Mount Sinai. There is no other God besides me. Yes, I'm just. I am just. But hallelujah, praise His holy name. He's also a Savior. Isn't that wonderful? He's a just God and He's a Savior. Hallelujah. Look at the law. Look at our outline here. The law tells us He's just. Doesn't it? The law tells us, here's my righteous standard. This is it right here. 
He is seen in the righteousness of the law. He is seen in the faithfulness and fidelity to the law. He is seen in loyalty to Him, to worship Him and Him alone, to love Him and Him alone with everything we are, everything that we have, or everything that we ever will be. He's seen in all of that. And none of that is seen in you and me. Not a bit of it. Not a bit of it. He's a just God. And the tabernacle shows Him to be a Savior. That's why we're going through the teaching on the tabernacle. Is it, you got it, Spencer, where you can come up with the teaching on the tabernacle. Because as you go into the tabernacle, and you go into the tabernacle with your animal sacrifice, and that front area right there, the front door to enter in, Jesus is the door. The word shepherd means door. He's the door. There's only one way in there, and that's on the bottom left-hand part of your screen. That's the only one door to the tabernacle to get in there. And the only reason that you would go in there would bring your animal sacrifice so that it could be slain and blood could be spilt by cutting its neck, spreading it upon the altar in order to appease the righteous judgment of God. That's the only reason anybody would walk in there. You walk in there as a result of a need. You don't walk in there to, to fulfill some ceremonial requirement. You walk in there out of desperation. You walk in there out of need. He's a just God shown by the law, but He's a Savior shown by the tabernacle. Why? Because why? That's a bloody place right there. The first altar that we encounter that we'll start studying. The first altar is where the animal sacrifices were made according to the prescribed plan. And at that altar... When those sacrifices were made, what is that a picture of? It's a picture of the fact that God would one day spill the only kind of blood that will cleanse anybody from sin. And that's the perfect blood of His Son. None of those boats, goats and bulls and lambs that they sacrificed there, not a single one of them cleansed the sin of the camp of Israel. Not one. But they were pictures of what God would one day do that will indeed cleanse and take away sin. Amen? This is the outline of the gospel. That's why in Acts 20, 21, I want you to go look at it with me. Let's look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 21. Acts chapter 20, verse 21. The Apostle Paul basically sums up his ministry here. He's meeting with the Ephesian elders and he's about to leave them. And they have a real emotional goodbye. And he basically characterizes his ministry among them in order to encourage them to, to take it forward, to continue in the the foundation that he had laid. And here's what he said in verse 21. This is what he went everywhere doing, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks. What? Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the law and that's the tabernacle. Look under it. Look at our notes. The law, why do we preach it? Because he's a just God. What does it call for? repentance. The tabernacle, why do we talk, study it and herald it and proclaim it? Because He's a Savior. And what does it call for? Faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see it? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Now I want you to look at this. Listen to this carefully. To proclaim, these. look at our notes here, to proclaim God as a Savior only without first establishing that He is just and that we through our sin have offended His righteousness, is to present salvation as a reward for deserving people rather than a gift for undeserving people. Did you hear it? To just proclaim Him as a Savior without the first establishing that He is just 
and that we through our sin have offended His righteousness is to present salvation as a reward for deserving people rather than a gift for undeserving people. Do you see it? If we jump straight to it and say, okay, He's a Savior. It produces superficial conversions. You know why? Because people begin to figure, well, you know what? I guess I, he, he should have died for me. You know? I mean, after all. I mean, compared to Ray Quinn? Compa or compared to, uh, to, to Ray Morris? Uh, oh, yeah, God should have died for me. But you compare yourself to somebody else or you look at your somebody else around. Oh, and in the whole scheme of things, maybe Jesus' death was for somebody who really deserved it after all. And the weight of sin and the need for repentance doesn't fall down on the heart. And there's no repentance. That's why commitments in the Christian culture that we say today seem so superficial. Because they didn't reach the heart. There was no brokenness. It wasn't a part of the message to say that you are a lawbreaker. That you deserve the righteous judgment of God. You've offended Him. As it stands right now, you're under condemnation. You are not yet to be condemned. You're condemned already. Jesus said that. If you don't believe, you are condemned already. And the only thing that you have to look forward to as an unrepentant man or woman boy or girl, is an eternity in hell where God will level His righteous judgment against the unrepentant. And He will do that. We want to take the gospel and contort it and toy around with it and tweak it and play into the games of the enemy to somehow or another proclaim it in a way that it won't confront or offend the pride of the unrepentant. Let's, let's take the edge off of it. Let's somehow or another remove the offense of it. But in removing the offense of it, you remove the gut of it. You remove the impetus for repentance and belief and a humble recognition of sin and bowing down at a cross to receive in humility. A glorious Savior. Salvation is not a reward. Faith. Salvation is not a reward for faith. Salvation is a gift, period. And it is given to the undeserving man, woman, boy, or girl who repents of their sin toward God and puts their faith in His Son. That's why the law and the Lamb were given at the same time. Conversely, to proclaim God as just only without heralding that He is also a Savior is to leave all hopeless with nothing but judgment looming over them. Praise to His glorious name. He is a just God and a Savior. Hence the law and the tabernacle. He gave us the law and the Lamb at the same time. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. That's why it happened. That's why the pattern's there. That's why in two trips up to Mount Sinai, no less, God gave Moses the same thing 
Because that's what everybody needs is the same thing. We need awareness that we're lawbreakers. How do we get that? Through the law and the curses that it demands and calls for. And we need an appreciation for what God did for lawbreakers. And that was He sent His glorious Son. Hallelujah! The blueprint for the tabernacle was a picture of God's gracious plan to redeem lawbreakers, sinners, through the atoning sacrifice and gift of the life of His precious Son, Jesus Christ. Praise His glorious name. Hallelujah. So we got two camps in essence, don't we? We've got a camp full of people who are trying to take the law. Or the moral code of the law and obey it in order to clean themselves up and make themselves acceptable before God. They don't know that they've got a wheelbarrow full of tickets. If we withhold that from them, they'll die in their sin. Come to a point they'll face their righteous judge and realize that their sin and their works fall woefully short. What a tragedy. Thinking that somehow or another they can clean up. It's a perfect analogy. It's a beautiful analogy. It's a wonderful analogy. But the scriptures tell us that the law is a tutor. It is a school teacher to lead us to Christ. It's like a mirror, the Bible says. And you place it in front of and God places it in front of us. And we take a look in the mirror. And we get up there in the mirror, and there it is, hung on the wall of our lives. And we look in the mirror and we see every blotch. We see every age spot. We see every wrinkle. We see every imperfection. And the mirror doesn't lie. As bad as we'd like to change the mirror and what we sometimes see there, it doesn't lie. It reflects back the truth. And we get mad at the mirror. And we get mad and it confronts our pride. We've got people who are taking the mirror and they're trying to take the mirror off the wall and use the mirror to scrub those spots off. you imagine how foolish that'd be? You got up in the morning and you had all kind of blotches on your face you want to prime it up, get ready to see all of us. You take that mirror off the wall and you just go to do it like that. I wonder what my wife would say if I came in the morning. And she said, what are you doing? I'm trying to clean off this spot. Off my, what are you using the mirror to do that? It's the same thing. Use the law to try to clean up your act and make yourself acceptable before God. It's only going to cause you problems. It's ineffective. It's not going to work. And look at all the other things that we try. We say, okay, we'll come to your senses. Leave the mirror up there. Go get a wash rag and some soap and put it on there. And try to get off a wrinkle. Try to get off a spot. I got a spot right here I cannot get off. We went to see a dermatologist the other day. And I had some tags on my neck he had to pull off. He's a Christian. He gave it to me for free. I was like, praise God. Anyhow, uh, but uh, or half price, I believe it was. But anyhow, I know he's a believer. We got there and he said, hallelujah. But anyhow, so... Uh, um, I got a spot right there, and I said, is there anything you could do about that? And he said, no, not really. I said, okay, no problem. But all of Olay and anything else you want to put on there, not that I do that, but anything else you want to put on there, try to get that off. You can't get it off. It's not successful. You can rub and scrub and do everything you can and go see the doctor and whatever you want to do. But there's just some spots on there that you can't get rid of. And that's the way sin is. We try to appease our guilt in a million different ways, but it just sticks to us, doesn't it? We try to get it off and do whatever we can. You know, we'll mess up other people. We'll criticize other people. We'll try to be highly critical of other people because that way it takes the guilt off of ourselves. 
We love to look around at other people who don't seem to be as righteous as we are and focus in on their sin because that way we can sit in the corner and go, I got away with mine. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. There's no other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. Put up the old overlay. Put the mirror back. Use it for its proper place. Let it expose sin. Let it expose the sin in others. Share it. And then say, you know what? God's just. And there's nothing you can do about those watches. But guess what? He's also a Savior. See, that's why the gospel message is repentance toward God because I've offended Him and faith in His Son. That's the gospel. To say repentance without faith is to, is to leave people hopeless in their sin. To, to profess faith without repentance is to characterize salvation as if it's a reward for something that we deserve when it's grace, which is unmerited favor. Amen? Now, So here's the deal. When you heard the gospel, when Wendy heard the gospel 20 years ago, that was not new. It didn't become new on Calvary's Hill. The gospel did not start at Calvary. It was sealed at Calvary, but it didn't start there. The gospel, and everybody who's ever been saved and ever will be saved, was saved the same way. And that was through belief in God's provision in His Son. Period. Abraham, Moses, Noah, all those big shots responded to the truth that they knew. What does it say about Abraham in Genesis chapter 15? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed. The first idolatrous family that's ever listed in the Bible is the family of Abraham. He was an idolater. He was a pagan. God came to him one day and made a promise to him. Through your loins, I'm going to send a seed. It's a capital S, by the way. Because it wasn't just a seed like Isaac. It was Jesus Christ. And Abraham said, I believe you. And God said, you're righteous. That's how you get saved. And it's not new. Look at this. God's way of salvation from before time began, that's 2 Timothy 1.9, was always through faith in the death of His substitute. His substitute. Here's the deal. Spitzer, can you just put some juice on the green mic? Here's the deal. It was always through the substitute. Salvation's plan was always going to be affected through the substitute. Now remember, when you when you spell your fill-in, and you spell it spell substitute, make sure you spell it with a capital S. That substitute should be spelled with a capital S. S. Because see, it's not just any substitute. It has to be the one who qualifies. It has to be a qualifying substitute. And the qualifying substitute was the Lamb of God. And so, we walk in the door of the tabernacle right here. We say that the trip that you would make with your family to bring the sacrificial lamb for your family to get the prescribed time to come in here and offer that up at the altar right there, that trip will be made because you perceive a need. You don't just go in there to fill up time or fill up some ceremonial righteous requirement. You go in there and you're, it arises as, as a result of a need. 
That's repentance. God, I'm a lawbreaker. You don't just say, what if your family said, okay, here's the deal. The rest of your families, Ray and all, y'all go in there. That's fine. You go in there, but me and my family are going to stay at home because we don't have a need for that. That's unrepentance. Repentance is, let me get to the tabernacle somehow or another and get there and offer up, according to the prescribed order, the sacrifice. But when I get there, and I get there with my family, and here I am, I've got my wife and my four children in tow, and every one of us are lawbreakers. You remember we got a car full of tickets for breaking the law. I don't get there and say, okay, you can have Andrew. Take Andrew. If you'll take Andrew and kill him at this altar, that'll appease God's righteous judgment. What do I do? I get there and I take a lamb or a goat or whatever we have according to our abilities and I take that in there and the substitute is killed. The substitute is killed. Every time an altar, every time an animal was offered at that altar, this was God's way of whispering from heaven. It's in the substitute. It's in the substitute. It's in the substitute. Can you imagine the amount of blood that was spilt there over those hundreds of years that he used that tabernacle as they wandered around and then subsequently set up worship in Jerusalem? Can you imagine the amount of blood? Can you imagine how bloody that altar had become? And God was communicating time and again over and over and over and over and over. Yes, I'm just. Yes, salvation is to be found. But salvation is to be found in the death of the substitute. It's from the beginning it was said that. And we know, and the reason I ask you to capitalize substitute is because that substitute has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, if it were just the law, you know what we'd be going there to do? We'd be going in there so they could cut my throat and the rest of my family. If it was just the law. That's right. What a Savior. Oh, what a Savior. Amen. Does anybody have a message to rival what we have? Can you commend a better gospel than that? Can you can you come up with can you just knowing that, just knowing that God's just, but he's also a savior, can you make a case that man could even invent that? That we could even come up with a way where a holy God and his righteousness standard could be met and kept and his judgment against lawbreakers appeased through the death of his perfect substitute, and the only one who could provide that was God himself, God the Son, and he did it through his Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. Are you grateful to be saved this morning? Amen. And that's how we enter in. And this, we're going in there, and we're going to walk on in. We're right here, we'll walk in. But before we had to go in there, we had to go through this. Look at our third page. See, God did it. Look. Remember we talked about the law? as it relates to our efforts to somehow or another obey it so we can God can be pleased. What that could not do, God did. Look at it how Paul puts it in Romans 8, 3 through 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, what happened? God did. By sending his only Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on the account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. And look what he says here. Let's look at our notes. 
God came to them and met them at the tabernacle. He didn't come to law keepers, not to the deserving, but to the undeserving. That's grace and mercy. This is a picture of the Son of God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who tabernacled among us, quote-unquote. The Bible says in John 1-2, 1-4, The Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and He tabernacled among us. When it says dwelt, He dwelt among us. That's the same Hebrew word that was used for tabernacled in the Hebrew text. It is He tabernacled among us. You could just as well have said that Jesus Christ came and tabernacled among us. And every one of those promises, every one of those types, every one of those symbols, every one of those pictures were fulfilled perfectly in God's blessed Holy Son. Amen. The Bible says, but to him who does not work, but achieves on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Is that what it says? It says, but to him who does not work, but what? Believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. Did you know you can take Romans chapter 4 verse 5 and you can do exactly what we did with it last week. And that's this. I got ahead of myself, but here's what you can do with this. What you can do with Romans chapter 4 verse 5 is you can say this. The only kind of people that God saves is ungodly people. Do you know any ungodly people? They're a candidate for salvation. I've had people ask me before to share the gospel. And I've uh, gone through it with, with folks before. And they say, well, I just tell you up front. I'm not a really religious person. And I say, you know what? I'm not either. I'm not either. I'm not either. Because religion about, is about man's unsuccessful attempt to reach God. Jesus Christ is about God's successful attempt to reach and redeem man. Hallelujah to His holy name. Amen. And you know what? God only saves ungodly people. That means I qualify. Do you? And then when ungodly people admit they're ungodly, that's repentance. And as a need, as a rising out of a need, walk through that door which represents Jesus Christ and see the throat cut of the substitute and find out that there's life in the blood. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen.